morning. Good morning, ma'am. How are you? Sleepy, but good. How are you? going good. Uh, my name is John Wynn. I'm a pastor of a church in Bush, Louisiana. It's a church plant slash revitalization. Um, I'm a freshly graduated seminary student uh, with plans for maybe PhD, but praying through that. So. Yeah, last time you did this, you didn't have your master's yet. Nope, nope. Got my master's in divinity. So. Now you got legit credentials. Yep. Which means you're doing good. Accredited by whatever the accrediting unit is, yeah. We're going to be talking about deconstruction today. Um, so, I mean, I, I mean, I heard a lot about deconstruction before, but mostly like when Rhett and Link started deconstructing the thing, I heard about it the most. Yeah, like a faith deconstruction. Yeah. So, it's, it's been interesting too because I, uh, I did a podcast with a couple of my friends recently, and uh, they kind of brought up deconstruction stuff at the beginning. And, and we talked about how we, we tried to define it too. So I guess we can do that before we get into this. So, uh, when we're whenever we, it, se- it seems like differs to some degree, uh, but the consensus is like, you know, if it's not, it, whatever it is, it has to be um, picked apart. Or uh, yeah, yeah. The term would be like hypercritical thought. I don't know. Yeah, it makes sense. Critical, picked apart. It all makes sense. Um, Deconstruction, so first of all, I'm not like an expert in this. It's just my experience uh, in literature or in, in the culture or even in philosophy uh, on a kind of um, surface level uh, working with it. But uh, deconstruction starts with uh, a guy named Jacques Derrida in the 18th century. And so he kind of starts it all off. And uh, it's become kind of a, a term thrown around in a lot of different ways, uh, like you talked about the faith deconstruction um, but I'm going to determine. I'm going to define it as uh, the dismantling of classical structures. Uh, with anything philosophical, you can really spend books and days and hours and years in research trying to define something. But that's how I'm going to define it: uh, is the dismantling of classical structures. So, uh, for your friends and Rhett and Link, that would be like their their faith story, deconstructing that and picking it apart and uh, looking at the pieces. So. Yeah, so when I was talking to my friends about it, though, it got to the point where it was like, it seemed like looking at it like a building, they're just pulling the building apart and then mm-hmm. turning it into rubble, and then they weren't rebuild like creating anything with it. Yeah, I, I think that's a for my, in my opinion, I think that's a good criticism of deconstruction because if you pull it apart to see what it's made out of, uh, but you don't put it back together, then what do you do with it? Um, and so that's. That's my concern, I think, as a pastor and a father, um, and also somebody engaged in the cultural conversation, I guess, as a whole, uh, even outside of being a father and a, a pastor, but uh, just the future of, um, well, what it means to be human, I guess, because you're deconstructing things that have been around for, well, if you want to take a very naturalistic pr- perspective, and I'm not saying I'm naturalistic, but uh, or purely naturalistic, but you're deconstructing things that are the product of of a long time of, of evolution. And if not that, I mean, you're deconstructing things that seem um, fundamental to the fabric of human society and, and what it means to be human. But all that's up in the air with deconstruction. What is that? And so my experience really starts in college with uh, with literary criticism. I didn't know it at the time because critical theory wasn't the hype, you know, that kind of uh, buzzword as it is now, at least for me. 
but I took a class um, on literary criticism, and the textbook was critical theory. And uh, deconstruction was really neat because I had grown up, and so for all my experience really comes from a biblical perspective, I guess, because of my studies. But uh, I had grown up with uh, a certain way to read the Bible, um, a certain way of understanding the text, uh, whatever it is. And deconstruction was really neat because it was a new way to look at things, and it was fun. You could really just exercise your philosophical brain and do all kinds of cool stuff with it. It was neat. Uh, so I remember in world literature, we read Beowulf, and that was neat. I can't remember anything much about it now. I just remember Beowulf was the protagonist, and there's an antagonist named Grindel. Well, uh, 1971, I can't remember the author, but there's a book called Grindel, and it comes out, and uh, it paints Grindel as the uh, anti-hero. And so that's deconstruction, dismantling that classical kind of hero epic and then putting Grindel as the guy. Um, you could look at it from another perspective that uh, I think is kind of natural to how people think of deconstruction as uh, uh, the one who has power and the one who's oppressed kind of thing, and maybe Beowulf having the power and, and Grindel being oppressed. I don't know. Um, but that's, my, that's my experience with it, but then it kind of bleeds into like biblical hermeneutics and deconstruction there. So, okay, so with biblical hermeneutics, how, how does it work in that? Um, so for a long time, I guess uh, the Christian tradition really has looked at the text in a, mul- in a variety of different ways. And so hermeneutics isn't some kind of like one set all thing. It's really evolved since the church started. Uh, for example, our church has been studying through Revelation. And if you know anything about the Revelation, without the S, uh, there's lots of ways to understand it, and it's kind of crazy. And for me, that's, I guess, can be an example of deconstruction, is I didn't look at it with the way that uh, this hermeneutical lens that was given to me, which is a very dispensational uh, kind of left-behind way, right? Uh, Rapture happens, Kurt Cameron freaks out, and then you have uh, uh, this kind of all the stuff happening with the prophets. I know it's crazy, but um, biblical hermeneutics and deconstruction is is pulling the text apart to see what the pieces are. So um, I could be wrong in this, but this is how I've seen it. If you think about like the Old Testament and source critical theory, you're pulling apart the different sources behind the text. It's really speculation. I don't think we can really say for ex- uh, with certainty that perhaps there's a, a priestly author here and a, a Deuteronomist author here or a Yahwehist author here. And, and that's referring to the, what is it, JDP theory? Do you, do you, are you familiar with that? Uh, it's the idea that the, in the Old Testament, um, there are different parts of the Old Testament that were taken from different sources and then uh, put together into a unified whole. And so that would be deconstructing the text to pull apart, see the pieces. Um, and even in, in if you're thinking about hermeneutics in the, the last century and even to now with uh, a movement called the Jesus Seminar, if you can call it a movement, a group of people, and they look at the New Testament and they uh, determine what they believe. It's very subjective, actually. Um, they believe what are real stories or sayings of Jesus in the New Testament. You have all these guys. Uh, some have New Testament degrees. Some have uh, training in that area. Some people don't. Um, and they basically sit around, and they look at all these sayings of Jesus, and they cast a vote. And they actually do it with beads. And each bead represents a certain color. And if they think it's this, they give this color, whether it's a yeah, that's probably Jesus, or no, it's probably not Jesus. Um, that's deconstruction of the text. They're determining, they're picking apart what they think is valid and what they think has been given by 
know, Christian tradition or history. Um, so, now I think that those are, are two two ways we can see it in biblical hermeneutics. If you want to bring it a little bit further, we can think about how uh, it's gotten into maybe ethics pulled from the biblical text. So, uh, I think the LGBTQ um, affirming or non-affirming conversation is one, and specifically how uh, I guess side B the non-affirming. Would that be correct? Side B, non-affirming? Uh, I haven't heard that term before. Mm. I just heard affirming and non-affirming. I think it's side B. It refers to the flip side, I guess. But yeah. uh, I understand. The, the non-affirming side will look at the text, and in my opinion. And uh, this is not going to be popular with some, and I don't want to seem disrespectful in any way. But in my opinion, have to go through a lot of hermeneutical loopholes and, and pulling apart the text to, to validate uh, an affirming position. How does, how does deconstruction actually help in, in this, though? Like, so deconstructing to find out authors, like how does, how does that help with reading your Bible and different kinds of things? I think it helps because <clears throat> we can grow up in a vacuum in anything, really. So how we look at things by our past experiences, what we've been taught, and what we, uh, we learn. So Ian is growing up. Um, for those who don't know, I have a son named Ian. He's three years old, and he's fresh. He's a, almost a clean slate. And so he's learning a lot of things. And um, he's going to understand things by the way that his mother and I teach him and by the way he experiences in the world. And he loves people. He's very trusting. And so something that my wife and I are trying to do are to teach him that we can love people, but some people aren't safe and we want to be careful and, uh, and to safeguard them there. So we understand things by our past experience and, um, and what we're taught. And we're handed a cultural and, and uh, theological lens to understand Scripture. Um, for us, it's the Western worldview through the, for you and I, the Evangelical Church, specifically Southern Baptist. Um, although that's changing with the way technology works because then we get all kinds of perspectives now. Mm-hmm. But we're given this perspective. So if we were lay people, we may have lived in the same church our whole life. We became a Christian. And so uh, we've learned how to read the Bible maybe from that pastor and those Sunday school teachers. So we've grown up in a theological, hermeneutical vacuum. Deconstruction helps us uh, hermeneutically as we look at the text to, to really look at the parts of the text and to see, well, is, is this really what I've, you know, is this really what's here? Let me pull it apart so I can see. The thing about biblical hermeneutics and deconstruction, though, if we're going to apply it, is we don't want to just deconstruct it and then leave it in its place. Because then it's not profitable for anybody, not, not for us either. It's an academic exercise. And uh, unless you're really a nerd, you probably don't want to do that on Sunday. Just pick apart an old text and leave it there. Um, so it does help us in understanding things like looking at the structure of the text, looking at its function. Uh, like a, I think the easiest one to think of is like the letter or the epistle. Think of the introduction what that functions as, how it uh, identifies an author most of the time, uh, the body, um, a benediction, closing instructions. Um, or if you think of Colossians and Ephesians, this is really helpful, I think, as we think of um, maybe gender roles and ethics. A lot of people go to the, the household codes, husbands love your wives, et cetera, et cetera, right? Wives love your husband, children do this, slaves do this. Um, it's really interesting if you deconstruct the text there, and I'm not using it in that kind of um, colloquial way where we just say, oh, I'm going to deconstruct that, but pulling it apart to understand it and put it back together. Those household codes where wives and husbands and slaves and masters and children are all given instructions actually mirrors uh, an Aristotelian idea of how the city should be ordered. 
And so Aristotle thinks that the city should be ordered this way for it to function well and that um, while men have this right over women and, and there's this kind of whole hierarchy and slaves being, if I remember right, at the bottom of the totem pole. Well, if we pull apart the biblical texts in Colossians and Ephesians and some other places and we look at that and we compare it to what's happening in the, the historical context, we can see as we pull it apart that Paul, in my opinion, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is doing something revolutionary in the, in the culture. He's not just saying, well, wives, you got to be, you got to submit, that's it. He's saying something profound that um, specifically for husbands, for you and I, that husbands, if you love your wife, look what Jesus did for the church. This is what the world says. This is what Aristotle says. This is what the, the Greeks say. But this is what Jesus says about how that culture should be lived out. So I think that's a really cool way to deconstruct the text, look at it, find that meaning, put it back together, and see how that applies into our world. Um, so for us, as we look at that text, it's not just, and I say it jokingly with my wife, wives submit to your husbands, but really what that tells us is, well, uh, for husbands, it's I need to be ready to die for my wife, to sacrifice like Jesus did for the church in whatever way that looks like. So I think that's how it works for biblical text. I was listening, I told you about this like yesterday, but I was listening to this guy, and I had to look him, his name up to make sure, but his name is Colin Wright, and um, he's an atheist, and he was talking about how deconstruction got interesting because got over the culture really whenever the uh, atheist, or new atheist movement mm-hmm. started really picking up and taking traction. And uh, anyway, it was interesting because like, at the time he said it was a good thing, but he said the more it takes over like how we he said it doesn't just stop at the, the philosophy or uh, ideology it's like continued into like the way the world functions and like um, science things like that like things that people agreed on forever have been deconstructed and, and mm-hmm. turned into rubble and then nothing's been built in its place um, so I guess the, the, the well, I mean there's, there seems like a lot of positives so far like for deconstruction um, you know like all, all like with, with biblical hermeneutics it's helpful to break these things down and make sure to understand how these uh, I don't remember you used to uh, what, what did you say like get from one across the bridge or something like that I can't remember oh yeah the so, like I know de- the deconstruction mm-hmm. seems to like help us get across the bridge to now um, but so where yeah. were the, some of the negative aspects of it you've seen I guess yeah so yeah, it's interesting to think that I've, I've painted a positive light because it is very it can be very negative I it, it can be negative in the sense that, so I, I like to use deconstruction as a tool, not my worldview. Mm. And uh, yeah. tools have their place, you know. I don't want to use a chainsaw in my house, ever. That's not a good idea, you know. It's going to hack it to pieces, and you don't get to put it back together because it cuts it into small pieces. You can't, re- you can't put that back together. Uh, but I might use a saw to cut something out, replace it, like sheetrock, like that hole right there that I need to finish. Um, so I think deconstruction is a tool, but it's a tool that can be used poorly. Um, and when used poorly, can wreak havoc that's uh, not, it's not good. Uh, like a chainsaw can destroy a house to, into pieces that you really can't put back together. Deconstruction can do that too, and I think that's happened in the culture in many ways. Um, it's deconstruction without reconstruction. So um, this might not sit well with some people, but the family, you know, deconstruction of the family. Whether you're a Christian or not, uh, it seems that humans do well when there is a stable family when there's a mother and a father and 
not arguing for the institution of marriage, although I think it's a good thing, and I believe it's a good thing. Um, it seems like human flourishing happens when there's a mother and a father, and there's a safe environment. I mean, that's the, the premise of counseling, right? There's safety, or a premise of counseling, that we can have a safe environment, that our needs are met. Uh, when deconstruction happens and it pulls apart the family, it seems like, uh, just me looking at the world, that um, some of that safety is pulled away. Uh, children out fathers. That's a bad thing, right? And for somebody to argue otherwise, they'd have to make a really good case with a lot of strong evidence to say that deconstruction has helped by destroying the family. I don't think it has. Marriage is another one. Um, deconstruction of marriage, I mean, that destabilizes the family as well. Um, ethics, you know, what is right, what is wrong? How do we apply the right and wrong? Um, how do we do that uh, in law? You know, how do we do that applied to um, medicine? You know, all those kind of things. Uh, deconstruction of, of things like morality. What is right and wrong? Uh, I don't think you can, from my perspective as a believer, uh, I think there is an objective right and wrong. I don't, and I think the, the atheist or anybody wanting to push back would have to make a good logical case to say that there is a basis for objective morality without God. But uh, to pull it apart, um, I mean, that pulls strings at, at the, uh, the fabric of human society. I think we're born with this innate ability to understand what is right and wrong. I see that with my son. I see it with other people. No matter where you go in the world, there is a concept of right and wrong. It might differ a little bit, but most places, killing somebody is a bad thing. <laughs> you know, uh, Most places, stealing is a bad thing. Um, and we don't have to, to be taught that. If you take something from a child, like candy from a baby, as the saying goes, they're going to be upset. It's a bad thing, you know. So deconstruction of all those kind of things uh, hurts, um, especially without reconstruction. Justice, I mean, that's the big one, right, right now? Uh, deconstruction of justice, how does that work? Um, who's the, uh, the one with power? Who's the one without power? And what we find is that, and I think the justice conversation, conversation should happen. I do. And I think uh, the racial conversation conversation should happen. I think we should talk about those things. I'm not like some ultra conservatives that say, well, um, the CRT is just a terrible thing, leave it there. Um, but I'm not also not going to say it's the one that's my Messiah, my Savior, you know. I think we should have those conversations. But uh, when you deconstruct things without a, a plan to reconstruct it or put something in its place, you leave a vacuum. So how do you deal with that? You know? What is justice? Uh, this might get a little political, but if you think about in California, if, I, if I'm right, you can not be prosecuted for taking $950 of merchandise. Am I correct? Do you know about that? Yeah, I've heard about that. Yeah, and a friend said, you know what? We could just go visit, take a PS5, and leave, and they can't do anything. We wouldn't do that. But I was like, yeah, you could, you know? Um, and, and that just seems wrong. It seems wrong, you know? It just feels wrong. If somebody comes to my house and takes $949 of things, that seems wrong. You know? Uh, that would be problematic. I don't think anybody wants that. You know, so deconstruction like that is not useful, in my opinion, or very harmful. So. Yeah, but I recently had a conversation about pantheism with some, some friends. That, they didn't know that that was what they were doing, uh -huh. but they were talking about how they started the deconstruction of faith, like brought them to um, to an understanding of like the universe connecting people and you know, mm -hmm. having vibrations between people. Oh yeah, um, yeah. So, I just, uh, so it seems like we can if you like still still looking like when Colin and I talked about how you know um, at some point he thought uh, 
what was that dude's name we were talking about? Dawkins? Yeah. He said something like, um, he, somebody asked him, what, what do we do if we remove religion? He said, you know, he brought up the tumor thing, like, you don't, you don't ask what you're going to put in the place of a tumor. Um, so he was saying, like, you know, this, this religion is a bad thing, you know, it's, it's something we need to remove, and it's not going to, it doesn't need to be replaced. But then, like, Colin Wright moves, and he's talking about how, like, at the time, deconstruction in that sense seemed really well, good, but then, like, now deconstruction is taking the place of that tumor. Um, like, the religion is replaced with deconstruction as a religion. Mm. Uh, so, anyway, he talked about how, like, the functions of humanity seem to, like, crave some sort of religion. And if we don't, you know, if we don't look after God, then we're going to look after something. So, oh, yeah. He's talking about how deconstruction is kind of taking that place of, like, a God, a religious God. Like, when we talk morality, like, the framework comes from deconstruction, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but it seems subjective depending on, like, who's the one, who's the person deconstructing, you know, like, the way we deconstruct seems to be a little different depending on, especially, I mean, when you look at justice, for sure, it seems like, you know, the, the, the nature-nurture part of it um, seems to kind of dictate how we may, like, view justice and morality, I guess, without God being involved in it, or the, yeah. the biblical, the, the God, the Yahweh God, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, but just listening to him, I mean, listening to him talk about and then later on, he talked about how it's been weird, like with this whole deconstruction thing taking over the culture. He's he he was debating Christians and telling them why the God wasn't real, and now he's working with Christians to write all these like he, he worked for the magazine called Free Thought or something like that, and they mm-hmm. they write articles together and they're doing this research together, and they all even though they may not believe like he mentioned, he just says he doesn't believe in God, and they they do believe in God. The the thing they do agree on is like even if he doesn't believe God is the one that like started this. So, and they do so. But the thing they agree on is like how the world functions, um, science, I guess scientifically, which I yeah. thought was interesting because I feel like Isn't in the early, t- early 2000s, everybody was saying Christians didn't follow the science and stuff. Yeah, and I now, think there are some that don't. Yeah, yeah. I, know, I had a friend that didn't believe dinosaurs were real until uh, <laughs> until a professor at Louis Carey showed him how it fit into the Bible or something. I remember the day he came in, came back into my room and he's like, "Yeah." Um, I believe in dinosaurs now. <laughs> Good for you, man. Yeah. Jurassic Park makes sense now. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, you know, that's interesting because uh, as a kind of a side note, that this kind of uh, the product of deconstruction of, of faith and, and uh, well, religion as a whole is a classical structure is what it looks like, specifically Christianity in the West. Um, that The questions like that, uh, as I'm trying to be obedient to the Great Commission and and share my faith. Uh, I had a guy ask me, we were sitting in the kitchen of the church one day, and he was just saying, um, I made myself very open as a, a pastor and try to apologetically deal with things. Um, he just said, so John, what about the dinosaurs? And I said, I don't know. Not not in their existence. Your listeners, please know that I do believe in dinosaurs. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but I was just telling him, hey, I, I don't know how it fits in this timeline. I don't have a timeline ironed out. Um, and for him, who has uh, been immersed in deconstruction of faith his whole life, he doesn't have the faith context. Uh, he said, John, I appreciate that, you being honest with me. Um, maybe that's something we need to do with deconstruction, is be honest with it. You know, what is the goal? What's our aim? You know, I appreciate that of other people. If you say you want to destroy the family, just tell me you're going to destroy the family. Don't do it so, you know, subversively. I don't know. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I would like to know the goal of that, I guess. What are you going to replace it with, you know? Um, 
if you see family as a tumor, the, the problem is, to use that il- il- analogy, is it seems like our bodies have all the pieces they need, maybe a little extra, depending on those other parts that you do get taken out or whatever. But if you re- removed your liver, you have a problem, you know? Uh, if you remove the family, which seems like it might be an essential organ, you have a problem. If you move uh, Christianity or, or a, some sort of religion, because I think that we have a God-shaped hole, or this, uh, Calvin would say, our heart is an idol factory. We're made to worship something mm-hmm. or someone, and we're going to. Uh, whether it's self or something, someone else, you know, things like that. Um, it seems like if you remove that, uh, it's problematic, you know, because if you're removing something vital to the organisms continuing to not only live but flourish. I think we'll see that. I don't know. Zran and I talk about how this generation really is experimental. I mean, everyone. There's always new stuff. We're figuring it out, learning. My parents figured it out. We will figure it out. Our kids will figure it out. But uh, just with how COVID's impacted education, how our media and electronics and technology are impacting um, psychology of our children, how gender, morality, all these things are impacting uh, our children. It's going to be interesting to see, maybe really sad to see how that ends up. Uh, just want to go back to pantheism and being in, um, but the it just seems weird like it seems less risky I guess to, to move from or it seems real more risky um, it seems like if, if it was reversed like you were going from pantheism to Christianity like you believe in um, the God that created the universe all this stuff and not the universe being God itself things like that um, it seems it seems like it'd be more risky to come from that leave Christianity to go to pantheism it seems we it just seems weird to deconstruct that way to me yeah I guess like it seems very uh I mean because you have this this structure obviously so you have something to deconstruct but like whenever I listen to people actually talk about pantheism like vibrations and and those vibrations are what connect with people and like the universe and things yeah. like that it seems the new agey stuff yeah new age new age stuff um it seems very like it seems a lot more blank doesn't seem like it doesn't really seem like you can you can break down like and, and defend that like you just like you, you just say I believe in the universe I believe in the vibrations in the universe are what connect the human beings like me me being here and then somebody being uh, all the way across the world we're connected by I don't know I don't really know what vibes and I guess vibrations mean um, I don't know if that's like a feeling or if it's like literal waves moving through um, through the universe that connects me to somebody else but it just seems it seems weird to deconstruct from this to move to that, and it doesn't seem. It seems more risky, I guess. Like the, the whole. It seems like it'd be just easier to say I don't believe anything than to deconstruct and move to that, I guess. Yeah, I think in those situations, there's uh, usually some kind of psychological reason, not like a you have a mental illness, but like maybe somebody's hurt by the church, you know, and so the church is the oppressor in the deconstruction, and this a new perspective is something else too to maybe find uh, power in or something like that. I don't know. Um, to me, it doesn't make sense. Uh, a new age thought, I, I think if I was not a Christian, I'd rather be an agnostic. I think that'd be the next logical choice. Um, <laughs> not an atheist, because that's a statement saying that there is no God, and that's, that's problematic, because you don't have the evidence to say that. You know? But, yeah, I don't know. Um, for people who go to, uh, like, new ageism, if that's the word, like the new age, things like that, or pantheism, um, 
I would have, I would want to question the deconstruction on the basis of uh, reason. So we want to follow science in the rest of the world until it comes to the metaphysical and the philosophical. So what scientific reason do you have to think that you are linked um, by vibrations or uh, with somebody else across the world in this kind of metaphysical way? You know, we don't have a way to say that. We don't, I don't think. Uh, there's pseudoscience, and there's a lot of it out there, and it, uh, all around the New Age. Um, but it doesn't make sense to me. That's a side note. To go from something as structured as Christianity, which has a rich um, intellectual, theological history, and perhaps if you're listening and you don't know that, I'd look into that because this is the Christian tradition, not just as a, as, as a religion, but the whole tradition itself is rich and full of history. It's something that is reasonable. It's not just a blind leap into the darkness of, of faith. Um, we have universities, we have education, we have all of these things because of of Christianity. So it seems interesting that somebody would go from something as structured, like you said, from Christianity, the Christian tradition and its rich um, heritage, to something like that. Um, and I'm not, I don't want to be negative towards that. It just doesn't make sense to me that deconstruction would follow that kind of uh, line. I don't know. Oh, last thing, the CRT thing. You brought it up. Oh. Um, so I just wanted to, like, you didn't really put a statement on it. You were just saying, I guess you wouldn't toss it out. That you, it's not your worldview. Yeah. So what, you, I guess I'm assuming you would say it was a tool. Mm-hmm. Okay. So in context, like, context around that, like, what kind of tool is it? So I think uh, first I should say that I am not in a context of ministry where um, race issues are a big thing they're just not because of my context of ministry um i don't think it's somebody's fault it's just it's just where i'm at as far as we don't have minorities in the community i am the minority uh <laughs> so we just really it's not something that uh that presses in we talk about it because we should but it's not like a this has to be fixed now for for my congregation in my context uh but i do have pastor friends who are in the, the thick of it that their their churches are made up of of all kinds of people from all kinds of different cultures and all kinds of different backgrounds. And so I get both perspectives. The people who don't aren't involved with it, they say, you know what, that is a terrible thing, we need to get rid of it. Because they just see things like Black Lives Matter who say, you know, we're going to destroy the family. Um, and then I have the other people who say, no, this is what we need. We need to do this. This is going to fix things. Um, but it's interesting. Uh, a white pastor friend of mine said that our African-American brothers and sisters are frustrated, not as a whole, but some of them are frustrated that that so many would be willing to throw out CRT because it's like a flashlight as a tool, that it's shining um, light onto a problem, and that as Christians, from a Christian worldview, with a Christian understanding of justice, how God sees justice, that we should, now that we see the problem, should work towards fixing it. And so I think that makes sense. Because a Christian, I don't think, can adopt a, uh, you know, the, the CRT worldview. It, it doesn't work. Alone, but if you use it as a tool and come at the problem from a Christian worldview that everybody's made in the image of God, that everybody has value, um, and that everybody should have a voice in the church, outside of the church, um, that's a different story. You know, CRT, if I understand correctly, may not see it that way. It sees an oppressor and the oppressed, and taking power from the oppressor and giving it to the oppressed, 
but for me, that seems like you're just putting the an oppressee, if that's the word, the oppressed, in the place of the oppressor, um, and just a cycle, you know, that kind of just spins off into more harm. But, um, yeah, if anybody want to have a conversation on that, I'd love to, but I don't have a, a fully fleshed out opinion more than that, I guess. So, okay, last thing I was going to say. Um, adoption <laughs> versus school. You said that maybe a Christian shouldn't adopt it because you were told what's the difference between adoption and something that we're oh, I think I mean what I mean by that is adopting it as the worldview. So, um, I guess if we wanted to use an analogy, you have like the way you see the world through your eyes. Um, and then you have lenses that you put over your eyes, like the glasses I'm wearing. Um, some people just talk about worldviews as lenses overall. But uh, we're going to see the world by how our eyes see them. Like, without my glasses, I can't see anything. I really couldn't tell what color eyes you have, and that's terrible. Um, but as Christians, our mind has a, a worldview. We see the world through a, a Christian eye. Through a, One professor of mine called it a cruciform lens, that we see the world through uh, Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection, the gospel. Um, so... That is something that when we became Christians, we adopted as a worldview, in the way I'm using it. Um, but we still pick up tools to see things, like my glasses. And so I think with a, a Christian worldview, and having adopted that as the way we see the world, we can pick up lenses and see what's wrong and move from there, I think. Um, but it gets tricky to say all that stuff because some folks, I mean, it's such a buzzword they're just ready to go they might have been ready to go and fight <laughs> when, when we first said crt i don't know like 10 minutes ago so i don't know it's uh as a pastor i have to be very measured and careful i guess yeah. the way i talk about it it's a hot topic right now for sure yep so especially in schools yep texas is uh some parts of texas are adopting it into the curriculum i've, I've, re- I've seen some of the books they're using not, not like me personally, like in, in the school the schools I'm in, hmm. but like some of the more bigger city areas are adopting uh, CRT curriculum and, and books and stuff. So more important. As we think about deconstruction, I'm, I'm curious. So if they're going to adopt things like CRT, do they have books on like, uh, you know, feminist theory or... So under deconstruction, there's all these theories that come out like, well, there's critical race theory, there's uh, feminist theory, there's colonial theory. And that's the oppressor, like the colonists, right? Um, uh, there's gay, lesbian theory, queer theory. Uh, so do the schools equally adopt those? Yes. Man, that's intense. That's a lot to talk yeah, about. You, there's a yeah, there's there's a, a podcast I listened to recently, and this woman's been like collecting literature that's been like some of these the places that are adopting this. She's been collecting literature. And she was showing some. One of them was about this little uh, boy. He was like four years old. Mm-hmm. And girl and so they, they they called him a girl the whole book like somebody they, they mentioned that at the beginning of the book like this is a person that was born this way but feels like it's this way so now so they started calling him like hers that throughout the book and talks about how in the book it talks about her parents are wrong like they're they're trying to convince him that it's her that she's a boy and then some part of the book talks about how uh she she finds a group of people to talk to so it's like teachers and it's um, and it's her four-year-old friend that she can talk to about that. So I mean, it's interesting. Like, the, I mean, I feel like it's part of the deconstruction. Like removing the yeah. parents and and for my education, oppressor. Yeah, my yeah, my educational experience is that the the child always statistically the child always does better if there's a parent involved in 
education that the child is receiving. Yeah, it makes sense. Like, you have your outliers, everyone smiles at the kids. But then usually some kind of parent, parental figure comes out in school. Uh, like when, whenever I was working this past year in third grade, there, there was a little um, there was a child that, that didn't have a, a good structured family. And then she attached really, really strongly to one of the teachers. Hmm. And then it created this different attitude towards education in her. Um, so... So even if the child doesn't have a good parent, it, 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 that's where the outliers come in. The ones that connect to the p- teachers and that kind of see the, the, the teachers in the school as like parental role, role models, that's when they really start doing better. Um, but statistically, children that have like parents involved in their education always do better than kids with, without. Um, to me, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, and that's what I'm saying. Like then, these books are like separating the parents away. But in the story, so it's a children's book. Yeah, it's for hmm. that. I mean, it's it's a that's, that'd be, that one was for like somebody's books are like created for certain grades. If you get a book, it'll be like from first to third, or maybe second to fourth, something like that. So this book was for the lower elementary kids. You know, man. Um, so it's for the kids that are like just above four that they could be like, oh, I remember thinking that when I was four years old, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Whenever you write books for children, whenever you read things, like you're wanting to cause recall in them. So what those okay. books are trying to do is they're trying to cause recall in a child that may have like said that when they were four or three years old. And then, man, I, there's so many things I wanted to do when I was four that I don't want to do now. You know? Yeah. <laughs> I, I remember my dad worked at U-Haul. He repaired the bodies of trucks when they got wrecked because people wreck U-Haul trucks a lot. I didn't know that. Uh, but uh, yeah, I wanted to work at U-Haul, <laughs> and my my grandfather and my father said, "No, you don't want to do that." When I was a kid, that's what I want to do. <laughs> now I'm like, nah, I'm good. I don't want to do that. Um, that's hmm. that's problematic. That's not all of them either. There's there's the I was, I was listening to another one of the books. It was about the oppressor and oppressed group, and it was the, the white and black topic. It was telling the, the white kids about how evil they were towards the black kids, and the black kids um, weren't able to succeed because of the the evil kids in their class man and 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 that was that was that was in texas one of those books was in texas too and one of the parents was a black man and he he it's it, it, obviously it seems like it depends on who who, who it is it's like yeah. e- even within like not all black people think the same about this thing not all white people think the same about it like you know some people think it's a great acting tool some people don't think it is and that's that seems to be you know some people on some people agree with that, even though they're different races, like on both sides of that. Yeah. And so, um, a dad, he hasn't helped. He is, he was part of this protest against the CRT being adopted in the curriculum because he said it felt it felt like his children are coming back home saying that they were not able to succeed, um, or they're being told they're not able to succeed because they're black. Yeah, that makes sense. Man, I remember, like, uh, college sociology class. I don't know if it's still a thing, but they talked about labeling theory. If you call a kid stupid his whole life, he's going to, you know, live up to that. Not being stupid, but he's not going to amount to anything. And that just makes sense. If you beat somebody down, so if you tell somebody that they're not going to succeed, well, why would they succeed? You know? So there seems to be, like, an extreme, I guess, of this. Well, I guess that would be where you would adopt it as a worldview. Yes. Than using it as a tool. Um, yeah, I think those are examples how deconstruction can be really negative. Um, to be controversial, I think, going back to the gender issue, uh, that is really scary because uh, to deconstruct gender, I guess. On a philosophical level, that's deconstruction of what it means to be human, right? And so uh, what does it mean to have a soul and body? And what's the difference? Soul slash mind, whatever you believe that is. Um, 
but the scary part I think is the ramifications are terrible. Um, so as a pastor, um, whether you're a believer or not, everybody knows about the different uh, sexual misconduct that happens in the church. It's sad that it happens. And I would want any church and the church, all Christians, to deal with that, like to to justly uh, deal with those who have sexually abused others. We need to deal with that. We shouldn't sweep that under the rug. It should be dealt with. But in that, uh, my church and my school, New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary, wants the, the students and church, the pastors, to undergo sexual abuse awareness training. And uh, I did two different ones, Ministry Safe and then From Darkness to Light, and both of those talk, uh, had to recognize that. But when they defined sexual abuse, it, it wasn't just um, touching. It wasn't just um, showing pornography to a student or a child, but it was also just over-sexualizing at a young age. So when I think back about my story, I think back about how um, discussions of sex were brought to me as a kid that were inappropriate. And so under that definition, that's sexual abuse. We're telling four-year-olds that they can identify as a man or a woman. To me, that seems like institutionalized sexual abuse. And I know that is highly controversial. But for a child, that's a problem, I think. Uh, And I think that is going to really harm... um, or to be a negative effect of deconstruction that we're going to regret one day. I, uh, I mean, I go into educational classes are required to do child development and beginning of child. A lot of you're just, when they're young, you're just trying to get them to get the concrete terms because oh yeah, their brains don't like with, with your son. We I called him Goofy before, and <laughs> yeah. he he got he get angry and say no, his name is Ian because he didn't recognize he, he saw a character named. Goofy, and he couldn't think of it as an abstract, and uh, connect those two things. Like I'm telling him he's acting goofy, yeah. you know. So he's thinking of a concrete term. He visually sees uh, Goofy. He knows Goofy. That's this character's name. So that means you know, calling him that character. You know, so I'm like I'm, I'm displacing his identity completely inside of this character. But he doesn't realize it's like the actions he were doing. He was doing. So he can't think out abstractly. You know, so like at a, I can't remember whenever your brain starts really processing abstract thought. Like. Like con- even third graders is really it's, it's still difficult, and they're they're like nineteen. They're getting closer to being, you know, most of them are like eight or nine, and they're having difficulty with some abstract thought. And then you know, if I give them this concrete term, they're still have to like really deep. It, for them, it's like a deep thought to think of something abstractly. You know, if I use a term like they if they've never heard goofy, they're gonna go straight to that concrete term to like see that character. And I maybe could use like that concrete character to explain the abstract of what the word goofy would mean in their context, but. They still have a difficulty with that. So if you're telling if you're telling these kids, you know that they're it, they, they see mom, they see dad, they see them function two different ways. I'm displacing that that character or that um uh, that identity that they may have and putting it in something else. So if if an adult's telling them that, then then the the, the concrete term is going to be well, then I need to be like mom or dad if it's yeah, know, the other way. Yeah, so it just seems really weird that this stuff is like, I mean, like in child development, like we're not, we're, we're trying to give them like building blocks, mm-hmm. and then those building blocks are going to help them create um, my uh, the ability to like think abstractly efficiently, and you know, and that comes with with biological development. Like the kid has to, you 
know, go through these steps before they can be deemed abstract anymore. Like, like brain development? Yeah. Kind of stuff? Okay. It, it's like, it is bio, bio, biological for the kids to have to develop before they can think abstractly. So it's just weird that we, like, trying to give these kids really strong concrete terms now. Because mm-hmm. that, that hasn't been the case for a long time. Like, this isn't in every school either, you know, it depends on the school you're at. But it seems like the bigger cities are so far the ones that are adopting this more quickly. I'm sure there's small, smaller schools that aren't. I'm sure there's some big schools that aren't. Um, but, you know, the ones that are being thrown out into the light are the bigger schools right now that um, that are adopting this. Mm-hmm. But, but anyway, with the, the whole the, the development thing, like, this, this just seems to really go against... If, if you want to say that some of this, this stuff follows some kind of science, then then we're, we're already kind of going against an established science, you know, mm-hmm. with, with children. Like, we know that kids have to um, develop. They have to be able to think, and, and the way to get them to think is to give them blocks to work with first and explain yeah. how to do that. Concrete blocks work, you know. Because um, kids think so physical right now. They see visuals, and that's what they think of concrete terms when they're younger. And then abstract thought. Abstract thought is a higher level of thinking. Mm-hmm. You know, and like most most child development, we say by like 10, 13 is when you can finally kind of think abstractly well. Mm-hmm. And then, like, you know, like it takes longer, you know, as an adult. What was it, like, say 25? 20, 25 was the age where we say, like, yeah. most people's brains are fully For developed men. and stuff. I remember that because insurance got cheaper. <laughs> That's why it gets cheaper at 25. <laughs> we can think abstractly. We know, like, that we're not the as stupid, nuances apparently. of driving. <laughs> so, I mean, that's what, that's what it is for, like, development in kids, though. It just seems so weird that, like, this, this, this curriculum starting to kind of take over, especially since it goes so against, like, child development, you know. Yeah. But, so but, you, or we're saying that these are innate. I mean, that's what it goes to back to, is all, like, we haven't decided it's, like, an innate thing that no human would do, I guess. Because I guess if you're introducing this in curriculum, you're saying this is a concrete building block that we have to have introducing this to kids. For the most part, it usually used to just be like just teaching them like structures of language. You know, like if, if in our context in English, we're teaching them like the structures of mm-hmm. English language and then the structures of math, like this number. If you put this number, this number, you know, it pushes this number to something else. Yeah. Or like the weight. Those are all subject to deconstruction too. I didn't think you could deconstruct math, but apparently you can. You know, yeah. math is racist. That's what people say. Oh. Uh, and language is racist. That's a taking, I guess, oppressor math and then. I don't know. Well, that's adding that, like, racial theory aspect to yeah. it. Yeah. You, know, you can still, like, deconstruct something without using, like, racial theory, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, and when I think of deconstruction, there's all the little, you know, uh, branches out from under it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Infamous theory, uh, CRT, um, post-scoring, all that kind of stuff. Those are the ones I'm thinking of. Um, but the whole gender conversation, if you think about it, the whole thing is deconstruction. You can deconstruct a rational worldview, in my opinion, because uh, that scientific perspective or objective perspective uh, disagrees with the oppressed subjective experience. So you got the oppressor that his perspective of gender that aligns with maybe an oppressor I'm doing air quotes uh, <laughs> oppressor kind of uh, view and then you're dismantling that and you're raising up a subjective view of well in this case gender. So that's scary. I think we should think through that not just Christians but everybody I think that's what's happening right now with parents too like there's and there's like it, I think the, 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 the conversation needs to be driven by the parents with the, with the children for sure like it's the ones that are going to impact the way things function yeah. in the school system is the parents so it's been it's been a good thing I think for, for some 
obviously for that that parent because there it seems to be an extreme like I, I and the, the negative that the worst negative aspect of CRT just seems to be the ones that are in the forefront when it comes to education. Yeah. Um, so I mean, for me, I think that's more of a high school conversation than it is a middle even a middle school conversation because the whole point of like moving the middle school is when we're like we've given given the building blocks and the elementary aspects side of it. Then you're going to start helping the system to just critically thinking about things in general in middle school. And then high school, I feel like, is where CRT is getting the best. Like, now yeah. that we have these, we've had the building blocks, we can critically think and, like, be discerning about what we're learning. And then high school is when we'd actually have these debates. I hope, though, that as uh, alternate perspectives are given that – well, as a, a perspective is given that alternates are also given. Because that's uh, – I don't know. That's – Kind of scary to say for um, somebody to say you you will not succeed because you are not white, you know. Um, that just doesn't make sense to me uh, as a person who's not white, listeners, not totally white. Um, watching my family, you know, be able to, and not my parents, but my my dad's family who are all Vietnamese, to find uh, in an American worldview um, successful lives as not white people having come from Vietnam, almost all of them. That's problematic to say that uh, just because they're not white, they're not going to do well. But for some reason, Asian people are exempt in the CRT conversation. I don't know. At least when I hear it. I don't know. Have you heard anything like that? Where it's uh, the Asian people are oppressed? No. Yeah, I don't really think so. I actually looked like at a, um, gosh, a breakdown of income, but basically, like I didn't, somebody like shared it to me, but it was like a breakdown of income based on like ethnic groups. Yeah, and so like it had top it was like Middle Eastern and Asian um, ethnic groups that were the top 15 and then it got to like the Caucasian subgroups and then actually in the, in the middle of that 15 is one one black ethnic group I thought that was interesting so one of the one of the richest top 15 richest ethnic groups are Asian Middle Eastern and one black ethnic group so it was Nigerians really and Nigerians hmm. are one of the Top richest um, average income age group in the United States. That's neat. Yeah, I think, think that's a conversation it. I had either. Like, sub, if you look at it, then you're just like, oh, Asians. But then you look at subgroups, like, okay, well, did, and, and then they're like, there are some like lower income subgroups in like Asian culture, but it seems like certain, like this specific, like certain groups, like they all, you look at their cultures, like, okay, that makes sense. Why? Yeah. You know, if like you there's think some cultural aspects to students and like what, what you value, I guess. And for them, it was. I guess success and middle like my Middle Eastern friends that I made while I was at Cary they were very about money and like getting like good degrees like uh, engineering some kind yeah. of engineering degree things like that and that was pretty much across the board um, with them were having some mm-hmm. kind of business degree so they could work with oil and like that you know that makes sense yeah I think uh, to look at I mean if you want to take a test case the American family is being deconstructed but um, this is a generalization but Asian families Middle Eastern families um, those kind of families they're really strong like community sent that kind of idea is really strong oh yeah that was um, another thing he said that the he, he's from Lebanon he said that the, the police aren't called there like you don't call authorities there your family handles it so if somebody dang if somebody yeah, he's <laughs> got like 20 something brothers and sisters I can't remember it was ridiculous like a lot of siblings and he said if, if another family messes with his family then his family is going to be one that goes and shows up to their door and That's handles intense. the situation. 
And so that's he said that's why he had big families there because the family is going to be what what handles when things go bad. Yeah. Um. So hmm. if somebody does something to him, it's not going to be authority. It's going to be his twenty siblings and maybe some aunts and uncles going to that other um, family's house and handling it. And so sometimes it sounds a little rough, but that's how they do it. You know, how he said they did it in Lebanon. This makes sense. Um, I don't think it's exact. Uh, you know, wealth is not always a a measure of human flourishing, but it makes sense that uh, those groups that have uh, well-defined families, because growing up uh, to a Vietnamese dad, mom did something, dad did something, firstborn, secondborn, thirdborn. They had their things they did. Uh, a lot of responsibility rested on me because I was firstborn. Uh, that's just a very, uh, I guess you could say, conservative view of family. But it's just how Asian people do it. That's what you got to do. Um, that that was a very strong sense. And then also, you know, for the other ethnic groups, my dad would say there was no option. You were going to college. Like, you had to. Uh, unfortunately for him, I got a degree that does not make a lot of money. Uh, <laughs> did not become the doctor or lawyer, which is a real stereotype, at least for me. Uh, he wanted me to be a doctor or lawyer. Didn't do that. But uh, but that's ingrained into that, you know, kind of view. And so it makes sense that they would do well. And deconstruction hasn't ruined that for them. They haven't gotten there yet. But it is interesting how America does export that. I took a, a class or a sim. No, I went to a, I guess a lecture on um, on Islam and is how postmodernism is being exported to um, you know Muslim countries and how the older uh, Islamic people do not like that because hmm. postmodernism deconstruction is is taking root in those places too. Yeah, he. I had two friends from Lebanon actually. One was a Islamic and one was Christian. That was interesting. He said. And they were telling me that the Lebanon is the only Middle Eastern country where a Christian is the president, or, or whatever you would call it there. Wow. Yeah, it was really interesting talking to them, talking about it. And he was telling me, like, him and them two, were, they, they were really close friends growing up. You know, like, the one guy, because he had you know, raised a Christian forever, and the other guy's been raised in Islam forever. And it was interesting just listening to them talk to each other about stuff. And, um Anyway, so just uh, not and, and then like arguing, I guess about like Israel and all this stuff too is interesting. I mean, yeah. Just like that, that like the Christian and Islam world, Islamic worldview, like they differed on like what they thought about Israel and all that kind of stuff, and it's very interesting. All that stuff to say, it was it was really neat getting to meet them, but uh, yeah. This, so like for them in Lebanon, it didn't seem like I guess the the postmodern stuff had really like caught with them because they're younger. They were like. Uh, Two or three years younger, I guess. They're like probably 20, 21 now. I think it's going to get there faster and faster with uh, things like social media. God forbid TikTok. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, it's a. We don't just export money. We don't just export things. We expect, export culture from the United States. And it's going everywhere. Yeah. I have, um, gosh, I had a friend that went to Nepal, and he talked about how the, the bigger city is where, like, the westernized kind of like thought was. You know, he said, like, if you go outside of the city, it was it was very different kind of culture. Um, so it's like people were very friendly. They, like, wanted you to come inside. If they saw you, like, going through the mountains or some random, like, village, it's like, oh, yeah, come here. We'll feed you. We'll take care of you and stuff. That's cool. When you get in the cities, it was a lot more, like, westernized and, like, personal property and things like that. And then a lot of people, he said people were what looked more like Americans there, hmm. you know, wearing Nikes. And, um, I don't know, just, he came back with some... Some weird, some weird joggers that uh, 
They, uh, the, it's very. He said it was very westernized. Like the the city areas of what the big city areas of what 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 was impacted the most. And he said the way they interacted with you was a lot more like American fields versus um, going out in the villages. Hmm. That's interesting. So yeah. it seems like the the cultures are probably going to be impacted first because of bigger cities, and I guess the spread yeah. will be spread out to where it's. It really depends, I guess, on the area. Anywhere that has internet, man. Yeah, internet. I went to. Before um, you know, everybody's gonna have Elon Musk. Before you know, <laughs> yeah, satellite internet. internet. Yeah. Um, I went to a village in Honduras uh, or a town, I guess you could say, and it was called Las Vegas. <laughs> uh, it really was. Um, but it was in. There's like one road in, I think, maybe two. It was uh, in the mountains, and we went on a medical mission. And I remember walking through the town and. Some houses had dirt floors, some of them had concrete floors. Um, everything was usually made out of concrete, and you can see a rebar on things. Um, sometimes no windows, sometimes they had windows. Um, but I remember going in, and there was this place that had uh, like Cokes and stuff like that. And all the Americans were excited because they had real cane sugar. But I remember going in, and there was a little boy playing on a laptop, and he was playing Grand Theft Auto hmm. in the middle of Honduras. And uh, I was like, wow. Th- you know, this is what uh, we've been given <laughs> from our great country. Uh, and I love America, but that is an you know, example of, of exporting something that's going to uh, contribute to the deconstruction of his family, maybe. Maybe if he's shooting up clubs and things like that is a good thing. Hmm. So it's interesting to see where we're going as a nation and as a global community. Well, I guess it's a good note to finish on. Um, what, like, any last thoughts, comments, questions, statements, concerns? Hmm, we've talked a lot about concerns, but uh, <laughs> I think as, for your listeners, as we think about deconstruction, just do it discerningly. Think about it in the grand scheme of human history, not just in the moment. How does it work? What's the end goal? What do you want to do with it? If you want to tear everything up, have fun with that. See how it goes. But think about what it, what it is. Thank you, John. I appreciate it. Thanks, man. End of discussion. Discussion.